This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast series brought to you by the online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care at the University of Maryland. I am delighted to welcome you to our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care, a series I have recorded with Connie Dolan to support coursework in the PhD in palliative care offered by the University of Maryland, Baltimore. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to our University of Maryland PhD program podcast. My name is Connie Dolan, one of your faculty. And our focus of this set of podcasts is called What Comes Next? The Future of Palliative Care. And I am so excited to have Allison Silvers with us. Allison is the Vice President for Payment and Policy at the Center to Advance Palliative Care. And Allison has a broad range of experience. Um, she's been really involved in educating payers and policymakers who sometimes think they have a better understanding of palliative care than they really do, and helping um, work with key strategists to think about access to palliative care and quality, and also really thinking about educating palliative care programs on value of their program, rather than justifying it, showing the value, which I think is a different way of um, looking at it. And so she has done so much in the last few years. Um, one of her biggest projects was creating a payment accelerator program, which was a workshop to help people think about payment opportunities and operating efficiently under payment models. Um, she's also co-led the Serious Illness Quality Alignment Hub, which looks at convening experts from the public and private sectors to define high impact feasible requirements and incentives for access to high quality palliative care. She also created a toolkit to help healthcare purchasers to um, improve the care of their um, individuals in their plans who have serious illness. She has created and led three learning communities for healthcare plans, um, uh, for ACOs and PACE programs, and then also really thinking about how to combine these events and the tools to help people move forward. And she does a lot with the National Coalition for Hospice and Palliative Care Advocacy. So I think, you know, understanding of a different um, framework for hospice and palliative care under that and using all of her experience, and I'm going to let Allison introduce herself more as we get started. So Allison, welcome. And our first question for you is, is letting you introduce yourself and, and then we'll ask you the follow-up question of, you know, what's the most entertaining thing about you that not many people know? Thank you, Connie. Um, as Connie said, I'm Allison Silver's VP for Payment and Policy at CAPSI. And I have been working in healthcare for generations at this point, I should, could safely say, um, often very frustrated with how our healthcare system works or doesn't work. Um, so coming to CAPSI and trying to advance palliative care and really the right way to care for people with serious illness is just a dream of mine. And as I'll talk about, I think the move to population health is the wind in our sails. Uh, we can only make sure that both sides of the fence understand the opportunities and what needs to be done. Um, in terms of uh, something about me that people don't know, I, in the before times when we used to go to in-person classes, um, I was studying improv. 
Um, and actually, I, if I can say so myself, I, I really wasn't too bad at it. It's a great way to just be comfortable in your own skin and to have fun and, of course, to just let your brain go. So uh, that's something about me. So we'll see you improv during our interview. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so, you know, you actually have a very interesting view of palliative care and, and what you've been able to do just, I mean, it's been so much when you think about it's only been five years. I mean, that's a short time for what you've done. So tell us kind of um, more specifically what you're doing in palliative care and, and kind of what is it the joy that it brings to you? Yeah, so the way I describe what I do, I um, call it a three-legged stool because there's three audiences that need to understand value and opportunity and strategies, and they all come together. Um, the first, as you alluded to, um, we do a lot educating policymakers both at the federal and the state level. Um, federal, yes, a lot of focus on Medicare and what Medicare is paying for, how Medicare is paying, how Medicare puts in the rules of the game um, are things that CAPSI is trying to pay attention to. Can we somehow improve the rules of the game so that people with serious illness don't have to suffer as often as they do? Um, then payers, as you may know, the world of healthcare, even for Medicare and Medicaid is increasingly in the hands of private payers. Um, their incentives to improve care for serious illness are just naturally there. So making them understand the value that palliative care can bring to them and then helping them actually implement different ways to improve care for their seriously ill members. Um, and lastly, palliative care programs, and we'll probably talk about this a little bit more, uh, but um, in talking with payers and health plans especially, the field of palliative care hasn't always been the best partner, um, hasn't always quite understood how to deliver care, how to re be responsive, how to be a good financial partner in a way that perhaps some other parts of the healthcare spectrum have been able to do. So CAPSI jumped in and said, you know what, palliative care, these are teachable skills. Um, we're going to try to get that information out there as well, especially on operating efficiently, uh, billing optimally, um, and creating long-term relationships with the folks who hold the purse strings. And as you can probably tell, it's, it's nuanced, but all those three audiences come together. And when everybody recognizes the value, knows what to do to get patients with serious illness to palliative care early and then deliver palliative care efficiently and effectively, you've got a much better health system. Can I just ask a follow-up question? Because you said something very interesting. When you were saying that we haven't sort of played along, is that when you mean by that, that we because we're a newer specialty, we didn't sort of understand that there's some things that people have been doing a long time that we needed to kind of grow up to? Or is it that we see ourselves somehow as different and then that 
gets an, our, is our own enemy. I, I think that would be a really good explanation, particularly because these are students who are watching this are leaders and they need to hear you kind of give that um, right. distinction. So um, my sense of it is it's not the newness of the specialty. It more is that palliative care views itself so it's different. And don't forget palliative care, a lot of the folks who are delivering it are coming out of hospices. And the Medicare hospice benefit is pretty generous. I know there's people in hospice that would not agree with that, but compared to a lot else is what is being paid for out there. The hospice benefit is really quite generous. Um, and it's, you know, it's a daily rate. So it's constant and that per, that way of getting paid isn't how other parts of the healthcare system that are having to rationalize who gets what when um, is probably where palliative care could could use additional guidance. Um, I think it's again going from the hospice model to a much thinner payment stream. You can make it work. Um, you could you know, focus more intensive resources on, on higher needs while you dial down lower needs. Um, you could know when people should be transitioned to different parts of the healthcare system, uh, how to monitor instead of um, maybe intensively coming in. I've even heard in hospitals, um, hospital-based palliative care mm. is, you know, demand is now exceeding supply, which is fantastic. That's, that's, a good problem to have, but it is a problem. Um, so knowing when somebody could come off service, you do your consults, you stabilize them, and then they come off service. Um, so things like that, that's where I think palliative care, uh, you know, it's coming from a great place. We want to help of course, you're never going to leave someone in perfect shape. There's, <laughs> you know, this is just not our population. So you want to jump in and you want to be there for them and you want to make sure everything's okay. And just to be blunt about it, uh, the resources aren't there for that level of support. Um, so knowing how to use the resources you have to give the support where it could be most impactful. Well, and I think what you bring up are a couple things, and I think that, that this is actually really good for the students to hear. Um, we do hear a lot about, you know, the hospice benefit is not enough. And I think um, many of us who, and I know you would share this, like it's been a political quagmire for the last few years because you don't want to bring it up because you don't want it to be taken away, right? Because you can imagine it would bring up a whole can of worms about how people would interpret it. And, and yet you are bringing up something that because it is a benefit is guaranteed. Has it kept up with the market? That's a whole other philosophical discussion. But I think what you're also saying is we should be grateful um, that in fact it still exists and it has that per diem model when a lot of other things have been taken away. Um, and I do think yes. I agree with you of um, it's, it, and, and I've been in this field my whole career and started in hospice and moved. So I feel like I can say this is that I do feel like we are in an interesting part business-wise, which is why some of the things that you've said are so important. 
we, those of us who were kind of starting this and, and remember kind of leaving hospice to do palliative care, um, we did feel like we were special. But I think if we keep thinking that we're special and nobody else can do that, that doesn't necessarily engender a camaraderie of we are in this together. Because I can imagine primary care people think that they have great relationships and do a lot of stuff. We have ED people who do a lot. Of, and so we have to be careful that we don't make ourselves so special that we alienate other people. Um, that, that's a great point. And I don't know if the students might've heard, there's a term called the medical neighborhood. Like you probably heard of the medical home mm -hmm. where there's a particular clinician that's, that's your guy or your gal. Um, and that's who's taking care of you. But in reality, and especially for people with serious illness, it's more like a neighborhood um, a, a medical neighborhood or it takes a village and you've got the baker and the butcher and the everything. Um, and that's how a lot of other clinicians operate that we're in this together and we're gonna uh, do what we need to do. Um, also very cognizant of the resource constraints. I, I'm, uh, I obviously that varies market to market and provider to provider, but um, being cognizant of those resource constraints, you probably hear mostly in primary care. You've got the 10 minutes, maybe 15 if you're lucky. So what can you do? Um, and then of course, other team members and other folks in the medical neighborhood chip in to make sure that patients and families get what they need and are they doing a great job? Maybe, maybe not, maybe for some, um, but the idea of, of that playing playing in the sandbox, understanding where everybody is coming from and what their constraints are. And I'm not saying palliative care doesn't do that. I just think, uh, again, back to the hospice benefit, it, it's a richer way to look at things um, than others might be coming from. So it sounds like some of your joys also is, is um, bringing some of this language together and commonality and understanding, um, sometimes maybe not being sure where it's going to lead everybody, right? Well, right. And actually, the other joy is, um, so back to the three-legged stool, um, there's also the, the payers and the ACOs and the population health people. And um, really educating them about palliative care and that um, I, I always talk about that there's there's a lot of solutions out there uh, that these folks are being presented with. Um, a lot of tech stuff, an app for this, uh, a, a new program for that. Um, and I really do think palliative care is really one of the very few that could improve quality of life while reducing unnecessary um, utilization. And it's got the evidence base and it really is, again, one of the few where you get both sides of the coin. So to be able to introduce that to folks who can do something with it and also to be able to explain to them and here's what you can do, um, I, I get a lot of joy out of that. We just finished, you mentioned the learning communities. So 
43 Medicare Advantage plans and Medicare ACOs. And um, just about out of all of them, they made progress on what they were doing to help their members or patients with serious illness, um, some to a bigger degree than others. But still, I think just about everybody reported progress, which is exciting. Yeah. So tell us a little bit, because we talked about in the beginning, you know, the, the, the concept of population health. Why is that important, do you think, in palliative care? And, and you know, in terms of moving future to the future, you know, how, how does that gain a bigger role? Yeah, so um, I will say for the future, everybody keeps guessing, is value here to stay? Will value accelerate? Is this look at populations something that's going to last or not? I'm very optimistic, um, maybe because I don't think America has a choice. <laughs> um, I know I, there's a lot of people who wouldn't agree with me. Um, but nonetheless, if you take the view that um, getting value, which really means ensuring optimal quality for uh, in a cost-effective way, um, not wasting resources and making sure that um, patient experience and patient quality of life is front and center. The, that's really what population health is trying to achieve. Um, so the opportunity that palliative care offers is pretty apparent. Uh, the, the incentives really are aligned. Um, I think what could be getting in the way, um, as I said, I, uh, all of the other ideas that people in population health roles are facing, I call it solution noise. Um, as a matter of fact, um, there was, I was going to talk about this about what keeps me up at night, but um, there was a meeting. I was there. In, Feel free okay, to go. There, there was several years ago, I was in a meeting with, you know, some pretty important leaders in American healthcare. Um, and we were talking about what um, should be the standards for patient experience. And of course, I brought up that doctors, nurses, all clinicians really should have basic communication skills, knowing how to understand what a patient values and then how to use that to impact the treatment plan. And by and large, the rest of the room is like, oh, that's only for people who are dying. All the rest of us, what we really need is a good app so we can schedule appointments. That's what people really want. And that's what'll make the good patient experience. And I mean, to be fair, yes, having an easier time scheduling, yes. That, that, I, it, it's not something you can dismiss out of hand, but I think what palliative care offers just has so much more of a meaningful role. And I think ultimately that's really what patients want. When you're sick is when you're interacting with the healthcare system. And when you're sick, you need that empathy. You need that, that opportunity to have it be about you. Um, so I, I think people are, getting it, it's a lot slower than, than I would expect. To me, the, the logic of it is like this hammer hitting you over the head and it's not going as fast as I would like, but um, I, I, I'm sorry, I, 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 I forgot your original no, question, but, but my point is that there's opportunity there. So, well, here's the question though, Allison. Um, 
you know, when I think about population health, you know, I wonder, there's two parts to this question. If there's a group that you feel like we haven't done a good job with. And then my second part though is given, well, we're still in the COVID pandemic, but last year things were different. And so palliative care, if you think about population health, COVID got associated with palliative care. Right. So just sort of thinking about two parts of like, okay, is there a population we should be doing that? And then what do you kind of think with what's kind of happened as a population health for palliative care and COVID? Oh, yes. And thank you. I'm glad you're asking that because one of the things that I really would want your students to take away, if you take nothing else from this, take away that um, population health is really, is really data-driven. And what palliative care folks need to do better at um, embrace, and I know this gets very political in organizations, but proactively identifying the population who would most benefit from palliative care. Um, back to that medical neighborhood, working with your colleagues, working with the oncologists and the cardiologists and the critical care staff um, um, to try to figure out as a systematic way, who are the folks that should be getting palliative care consults, getting um, admitted into home-based palliative care programs, et cetera. Um, I think that that is one of the, that, that speaks the language of population health people that we're gonna stratify the population and figure out you know, the, the language of matching the patient's needs to the services, right? Service, right time, right place. Um, I think palliative care could be an enormous team player there. Um, mm -hmm. Clinician referral is important um, and it doesn't always work. Most often what I hear is that you get the referrals too late. Um, you get not always the right patients. So to be able to do it systematically and bring your services to the right patient population on the whole better um, than otherwise using data, you can also then ha therefore have a greater impact. Um, and then that could be self-sustaining too. Um, so with COVID, um, what I was hearing about was the organizations that were using data, okay, here's the 20,000 people today in this emergency room who's gonna get palliative care. So they implemented, you know, just these simple protocols to help the ED staff manage that. Um, so, and then some places got sophisticated um, teaching the uh, ED staff, okay, here's some basic communication scripts that you can use with patients and our families. Um, and here's the triggers that it, this might be getting too complicated and here's when to call palliative care. So it worked it worked pretty well in those intensive surges of COVID. And if we can keep that up when the situations aren't so dire, um, I, I think that would be a win for the field. Hmm. Can I begin with a couple of questions? Sure. Of I can see she's been getting excited. She's trying to figure out that blank. <laughs> so 
I must have missed a memo because this just seems so intuitively obvious to me that <laughs> the healthcare plan's best interest to see the enormous value that palliative care brings to the table in terms of quality for patients and reducing costs. And I would think that populations of people would be happy to mount a grassroots effort to, to push for this too. And then when I think about the for-profit community-based palliative care companies that are out there that have developed these algorithms that they run against a healthcare plan's database, right. should we be doing this systemically? I mean, did I miss something here? Why is this just not happening? <laughs> oh my God, um, Mary Lynn, I, I love where you're going. I, I always say the same thing. I'm like, what is what? What are we missing? I, this is so obvious. Um, I, I will say that when you talk to payers, and where I see the hesitancy is, um, yes, there's published literature, and what you said, yeah, we know this. Better quality, lower costs, done. What's your problem? There's just skepticism. Mm -hmm. um, and back to that concept of solution noise. Mm -hmm. Figure 20 people a day knocking on your door or, or <laughs> zooming into your living room um, saying the same thing. We know exactly how to you know, increase quality and lower costs. And it's this app or it's this... Um, mm -hmm uh care coordination model or what you really need is um i don't know you know again a scheduling app and everything will be better um so when all of that comes at you at once and palliative care becomes yet another thing that's saying that i i think it is hard for us to break through and capsi is trying to figure out how how to break away from the pack. Um, the learning communities did help. And I think we took organizations through and, and showed them and, and showed them where they can start. Um, and then the other thing about the grassroots, I, I, I really like that um, you're going into, if I'm understanding you, going into the idea of the public um, and maybe public demand. Um, CAPSI is working on that as well. As you know, we have a uh, a public relations issue of being associated with death and just, just the association has a public relations problem. Um, so I think that gets complicated too. So I hear you, it should be so straightforward, but there's so much communication and hitting messaging um, that gets in the way. The other thing that I'll also mention is um, there have been a lot of instances where palliative care leaders knock on the door of whatever, the chief population officer, or a medical director in a health plan, whoever it might be, and they'll show the literature. And the response is, oh, well, that won't work with our population. Or, oh, of course that worked because it was in Iowa, but that's never going to work in Boston. Um, you know, things, things like that. And there are ways to respond to that. Um, one, my favorite um, from Sean Morrison is like counter and say, okay, fine. They got a 30% savings. What if we cut it down and make our expectations half? What if we aim for 15? Are you willing to give this a try? Um, so there are ways to respond to that, but there is also a lot of skepticism. We in the field know this is almost a magic bullet, um, certainly on quality of life. I don't think anybody could debate that, but 
outside of the field. There is indeed debate about it. Well, granted, I do suffer from a pretty bad case of everyone's entitled to my opinion. <laughs> but it sounds like winning the war is going to be one healthcare plan CEO's mother at a time, if you know mm -hmm. what and actually, some of the early adopters were exactly that. Um, it, and the time is on our side. So, uh, Connie, you were saying when we started, is it because we're an early field? More and more people are just experiencing palliative care and seeing the difference that it makes. And yes, more and more of those people wind up being health plan CEOs or chief medical officers in the health system. Um, so yes, that 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 is helpful. But I also think there's things that that palliative care leaders can put forward to folks to. Um, not only convince them that palliative care is the best thing since sliced bread, but really to give it a try. Let us try with a population, again, back to the data, who, who are the patients that are keeping you up at night? Is it those um, oncology patients that are going to the ED too often? All right, let, let's give a try there and then let's see what happens and you go from there. Um, you know, I think the other part that it makes me think of is um, it's not only the CEOs that need to have that. I think all of us as palliative care providers or team members, however we want to kind of say this, um, you know, we're having these encounters when we try to get our own families involved and it's not a positive one, right? right. And I, um, I think one of the things that I always try to do for better, for worse is, is get out of my clinical mode. Right. So like, you know, when I'm going to get that mammogram experiencing as a patient and going, Oh my God, you know, like, okay, this is what a patient is experiencing and how much do they tell them? Or, you know, you're at the front desk and they're asking you about your insurance and, you know, you're having to explain something. And even, you know, I have a card, I have whatever. And, but, you know, I have to insert the card and they're like, well, why didn't you do that sooner? And it's like, and I'm thinking, man, if I were somebody who um, didn't feel empowered in this world or didn't have health literacy, I just want to shrink back down and leave because I'd be mortified, right? right. Um, and so I think some of this, and it's so interesting because I was app, is that a generational thing? And yet, I don't think so because you know that's about the scheduling, but when you're in the room with the patient, right? Which is when the rubber meets the road, all of us know what it's like. Um, and you want that person to be connecting with you and, and not paying attention to the computer. Um, we had computers that were called cows, computers on wheels. So first of all, we had to stop calling them that because patients got insulted because they thought oh. And second of all, I made it like my, I mean, it's, you know, when I see a patient, I don't have a computer, I have a notepad and I'm connecting, right? So it means like, sometimes I'm taking the, it's like, sometimes they're like, gosh, I wish I had some other thing, but I'm taking these notes so that I am with them, right? But there's no computer. Now the challenge for me means that when I come out of that room, that's why I love electronic health records because it prompts me for the things that I went over, right? Um, because I may not have done them in that order, but I did go over them. And so then I'm with the patient, takes me longer to chart because I haven't done half the note in the room. But I would much rather have 
that experience from my own provider, right? Than them paying attention to that. And I and that's become true to me when, you know, I still work clinically and I was, uh, it's a very interesting part because I'm covering for the team. I'm in a community that's not well-resourced. So when I'm on, I'm by myself. And I went in to see a patient and she's in her eighties and she has a husband who's demented, who's caring for her and there's family members and just lovely, right? And they're trying to be nice for him. And at one point she said, okay, dearie, you go with the girls and I'm just gonna talk. And when they left the room and I was sitting there and I had just done whatever, she started crying and she said, thank you for just sitting with me. Nobody's asked me those questions, breaking my heart, right? Because I'm sitting here thinking in my mind, I'm a fraud, I haven't done anything, right? <laughs> haven't fixed that but it was so clear that her experience was we were treating her as an object right and not as a person and so that's the part that I think of like when all is said and done and when you think about populations to each of our encounter and you know I'm thinking about culturally competent care or whatever that we are present and how do we really sell that experience to some of these payers right and, you know, I, I, I think the, the sale is that the system, the system doesn't work for anybody. Uh, I keep repeating that, but every day I'm just like, oh my God, how do we get here? Um, the system doesn't work for anybody, but the system just is completely inappropriate for people with serious illness. And I think showing the payers exactly where that goes wrong and what palliative care can do to, to, to make meaningful improvements um, really does work. So what keeps you up at night for this work? Um, we are at this moment in palliative care. Yeah, so um, again, I think um, the pace of change is keeping me of uh, exactly, Marilyn, what you were saying earlier, like, duh, <laughs> why is this not everywhere all the time, 20 years ago, starting from 20 years ago. Um, so um, I think the pace of change is, is frustrating. Um, I, I'm going to go somewhere which um, might be a little controversial, but I think the other thing that is starting to worry me is um, an emphasis on advanced care planning and filling out advanced directives. And um, let me preface by saying, yes, that's extremely valuable um, and, and can make a difference, but I'm starting to see some payers, population organizations focusing on completion of an advanced care plan and completion of advanced directives. And it's measurable. <laughs> it's, you, you know you can be successful if um, you have 100 encounters and 89% of them filled out the post at the end. Um, so I think there's an appeal there. And I think there's an appeal that it's very tangible. Um, but I, I'm concerned that that's where the buck would stop that we've got a population with serious illness. Let's make sure they have advanced care plans. Let's make sure they have advanced directives and we're done. 
and I really am trying to be out there. Capsi is trying to be out there as well, teaching that it's it's a a basket of interventions that folks need. Um, and advanced care planning could be a valuable piece of it, but there needs to be other things as well. So I think, um, you know, if your students interact with these population health leaders who are like, oh, great, we want advanced care planning. It's a foot in the door. Uh, what is it? The camel's nose under the tent, whatever you might call it. But that the work still needs to be done that in addition, we're gonna find out, let, let's assess for symptom burden, caregiver burden, areas of distress, and let's address that. Not only what happens in the future, <laughs> um, if I face this distress, but what distress I may be facing at this moment and how to get that addressed. Um, so back to my improv thing, it's a yes and. Um, <laughs> yes. Advanced care planning, happy to help. I'm gonna dive in and let me make sure that sources of suffering that are currently present get addressed. That's great. I mean, I think that's, I think I would agree with you. Um, and I think that's in my mind also about a little bit about the NCP guidelines, right? It doesn't say an advanced care planning program is a specialty palliative care program, right? That's like a component and sort of helping people guide back to that. Um, so, you know, what do you think, you know, we have these students who are going to get their PhD in palliative care and we want them to be leaders. Um, so, you know, how do we help them guide into the future of the things that we need to make better? Um, so I alluded to this earlier and uh, I'll, I'll put a little more meat on the bones and it's the business of running a palliative care program. Um, being a good partner, as much as I was just saying about making the value case, if they push or, or if they come to you with ACP, making sure that you could um, show value for a broader range of services. But um, I think the other piece of that is really being able to operate your program efficiently. Um, and I, again, caution, controversy. I don't know if this is distasteful. Um, I have an MBA. <laughs> so um, that, that's, I guess, the way I look at the world. But in reality, there are limited resources. And in reality, patient and family needs are just so enormous to what we can really ever hope to to help with. So I think the work of palliative care leaders is figuring out how to deploy your team, how to deploy the time and attention that is a limited resource to the right patients at the right time. Um, I'll tell a, a story, it was not palliative care, but um, I ran a community case management program for isolated older adults. And um, there was a nurse um, who I heard about from, uh, so, so somebody had a scheduled visit with the nurse, uh, another nurse, and they came in and one of the other nurses was there making scrambled eggs for the patient. And I, I 
I'm not saying that making scrambled eggs is wrong and I'm sure the patient was hungry and needed and talk about an expression of love. I mean, there was nothing bad about it, but could that nurse while she was making scrambled eggs for that patient have maybe used her skills at the top of her license helping somebody else? And, and those are the choices that palliative care leaders are gonna have to make all the time, maybe not scrambled eggs. Hopefully, ho hopefully there, 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 there's some um, boundaries already there. But um, how do you have an impact on patients and families, but still make sure that you're available to serve the gazillion other patients and families that are there? Um, back to um, being a good partner. Um, when I was saying earlier that payers didn't always see palliative care as, you know, playing ball as well as some others, um, waitlist. So palliative care programs would be like, okay, I have a three month waitlist. Isn't that great? My program is so popular. But that means that all those people who can't wait three months are left suffering. Um, so I know this isn't easy and I know this is a problem that will continually have to be solved, but just, I would suggest as a leader, keeping your eye on, I'll call it efficiency, just making sure that your resources are going where they can have the most good. And it does mean dialing it back from where the, the marginal benefit might not be as high. Well, I, I mean, it's funny, Allison, um, knowing you, but also just thinking, so my mind is, is racing because I, I thought you were going to go two places. One is, I, I mean, I think what is seen as the clinical part is only part of it, right? There's a whole support team behind it. And I think in a business frame of making sure that the right people are doing the right job. Yes, I left that out. That. Yes. But to remember that like when I'm seeing that clinical person, who's behind me supporting my ability to do that, right? So that has to be structured really well. Um, and I think, you know, you do get into these clinicians who say, well, I just want to do it. Well, my feeling is once you do something, once you're setting precedent, and if you haven't talked to your team about it, it's really unfair to them because, you know, once, oh, well, you did it for them, why didn't? And the second place I thought you were going to go that I thought was sort of interesting is this whole part about, um, you know, we have moved in the sense that um, none of this work can be only about my compassion, right? Because you, what you're really speaking to is this financial sustainability that you have to have the dollar sign and the heart next to each other. Right. And while you sort of said you were an MBI and people might go, oh, well, no, we need that perspective. And it can't just be the clinical part and recognizing all of our parts to come together of creating. Um, and so I'm just reinterpreting a little bit because I think you were trying to be gentle, but I think that that's how we've risen of understanding that um, we can be the most compassionate, empathetic people, but our program will fail um, if we don't have that work. And you know, you and I have seen that where you have somebody who started something, never had the support of the hospital, didn't even know who their business person was, comes up for a budget and the person's like, we didn't know you existed and you can't show anything. And they're really surprised. And it's like, who were you working with? Like, you, you know, so I think that that's really important. Lynn, did you have a question about that? Or are you just taking that in? I'm taking it in, but my two observations are, 
Um, I think that we as individual practitioners and palliative care teams as a whole need to continue to strive to show um, we're not revenue generators so much. We may save money, but the value and the quality aspect, and also to encourage not only people to be super well-trained here, but to a transdisciplinary extent, extent so that we're not practicing in a siloed environment. Right. No, and, and, and thank you for, for mentioning that, you know, using the team wisely is another core skill of this. And, you know, I think in terms of um, you know, that point about revenue, we're not revenue generating. Um, one, the field has room for improvement there too. Um, I, I do think on the whole, we're leaving money on the table and that's um, a sophistication that maybe will come in time, but if we could expedite expedite that, that would help. Um, but the other thing about that, I'll name it, it's unfair. A cardiologist doesn't have to worry about proving their value. Um, you know, uh, forget about orthopedics, um, but, but most of healthcare doesn't have to worry about proving their value. And I'm sure palliative care folks feel beat up. Why do we always have to prove our value? We're, we're contributing to um, you know, patient and family quality of life, that should be enough. Um, but I think to, to be fair, um, because we're not pulling in the revenue, it just means we have to be good financial stewards of the resources that we do have. Um, I started my career in healthcare, it's not on my bio, um, in transplant. And um, the money that the transplant program brought in was just astounding. You know, I, th I think we were able to, the excess revenue, you know, just really, I don't know, yachts and things like that. Um, and palliative care is not going to do that. And we, and we don't, you know, there's no need to, we, not everybody needs a yacht. Um, but on the other hand, recognizing that because we're not doing that, you also can't, you know, have have a program that that doesn't deliver in volume and outcomes. Yeah. So our last question is: um, so we're going to have again these um, future leaders who are doing this PhD. What advice do you have for them starting out in palliative care and and you know, their career maybe, or, or starting a new career? Yeah, um, I am looking at the notes that I prepared. Um, I, I, I'll, I'll end with this idea about palliative care being a partner to population health. Um, I hope out of this conversation, it's pretty apparent that the goals of population health and the goals of palliative care are really exquisitely aligned. Um, so what's needed is to have the, the confidence and the capabilities to have conversations to point out those alignments. And then as again, <laughs> has been pretty apparent from this conversation, delivering a program in a cost-effective way that delivers on where that alignment is. I really think leaders, um, P 
PhDs are the leaders of the leaders. So really showing how to make that happen and being successful there would drive success elsewhere. So we need a Dr. Fauci in palliative care. Yeah. <laughs> well, Dr. Meyer, uh, Dr. Boyack, we've got them. <laughs> we do. We do. Thank you so much. Great. Well, thank you, Allison. Um, we thank are really you. excited for our students to listen to this. Any last minute comments, Lynn? No, I think this is awesome. I think it's, um, I think it's almost an uphill battle. I mean, I know as a pharmacist, I spent much of my career justifying my existence and hard to quantify. Okay, if I recommend stopping a drug, they may feel better and we saved a boatload of money. Is that enough? So I think your points are so well taken. Thank you. Yeah. I, I would just say, I, I think it's really important um, for you know, our students to kind of be thinking about these business strategies and some of the outcomes and the quality because that is us growing into what healthcare is. And right. you know, we are a part of it and we are gonna be compared. And so really kind of thinking about some of these things. So thank you again, Allison. We are yeah. so appreciative. Thank you. Oh, I'm sorry, one last comment, data. <laughs> Use the data to find the patients and you will, you, you're already in a better place. <laughs> okay, okay, now I'll shut up. <laughs> no, that was helpful. Dad is important. Great. Thank you again. Okay, thanks. I'd like to thank our guest today and Connie Dolan for the continuing journey in our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care. I'd also like to thank you for listening to the Palliative Care Chat Podcast. This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2021 University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care, or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.